Hello, rescuers. It's Che Webster from Roleplay Rescue. About a month ago, I had an online chat with Gabriel Rourke, and we were chatting again about 10 things we would bring from the Arduin fantasy world of David A. Hargrave um, into our own campaigns. And we ended up having a conversation on the Anchor app for around about two hours. And that was a really good conversation. I've, I've not really known what to do with this recording because of two problems. One, it's huge. I mean, monstrously long. And secondly, well, Anchor kept dropping. And the worst thing is the whole interview ends very, very abruptly. So what I've decided to do is I've gone through it this morning and I've spent a goodly time editing and tidying it up as best I can. And I thought, you know what? This makes a brilliant bonus episode. Gabriel had so many good ideas and so many good thoughts that came from David Hargraves arguing. I didn't want to lose this. I didn't want to like not put it out there. So I invite you to dive in, have a listen, and you know, if there's anything in there you find of use, well, give me a call and let me know. Without any further ado, here's the recording. And Gabriel Thanks ever so much for coming on, and I'm really sorry this gets patchy at times. Game on. Um, okay, so my guest today is uh, Gabriel Rourke, who has been on the show before, and he's back to talk about arguing again. Hi, Gabriel. Hi, Jay. Hey, listeners. Um, okay, so um, basically I, I gave you a call really because um, I'm putting together a new fantasy campaign and um, we were just kicking around, you know, what could we steal from Dave Hargrave's arguing? And I believe that I kind of set you the challenge of a top 10 of things to steal. So, um, yeah, are you ready to go? I am. Um, number one would be race-specific attribute ranks. Okay. Yeah, they're a cool feature um, for the benefit of the listeners. So what are we talking about? The first Arduin Grimoire, um, uh, Hargrave uh, has a table of some probably 20 plus races, maybe even 30. Um, and uh, he calls it a character limitation chart, actually, uh, which... Yep sounds somewhat negatory but, but it's not um, and instead of uh, character generation being promoted as say 3d6 down the line or 4d6 take the best three or you know whatever your favorite methods are um, he's got individual ranges of attributes worked out for each race i'm looking at now some page six of the first grimoire um or if you're looking at the Arduin trilogy, it's page 104 where it starts. Fabulous. So yeah, human male and human female, elf male right. and female, and so on. Dwarf hobbit. Oh, did he get sued? <laughs> um, <laughs> Amazons, orcs, kobolds, goblins, hobgoblins, gnolls, all trolls. Fantastic. Uh, giants, dragons, balrogs, lesser demons, and great demons. Love it. Yeah. And even uh, demigods, undead, uh, energy beings, silicate life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can see that now on that page. Oh, Just some far out there stuff. Um, 
Yeah, the funny thing about um, these ranges uh, is it it looks like most of them are best resolved with a um, like a D8 or D10 um, roll plus 10 generally. Uh, a personal favorite of mine. I mean, it, it is simple once you look at the chart and can discern the pattern. Um, but, you know, the thing I, I personally like about things like uh, 3D6, any multiples of D6 and um, uh, percentile for some system, you know, a somewhat greater spread uh, within races. Yeah, um, I, think, I think I remember like um, reading because it's the complete arduin. I think he then does do this as like the clearly the die type and the bonus. Um, that's the right. I'm sorry. Yeah, so, it's like so you don't have to work it out and do the math in your head. But no, it's cool. Um, so, what do you particularly like about this then? Well, it's a handy way right off the bat to differentiate uh, the races, and sometimes uh, this will probably be and not be a favorite of, of um, many people. Um, I see it as a feature, not a, not a bug. And even differentiating, uh, you know, the sexes in some race races. Um, and uh, to me, it gives players something right off the bat to grapple with. Mm. What kind of character do I want to play? You know, um, you know, I usually tell people joining my campaign, pick your race first. That's something that's also formula, uh, formalized in the complete Arduin, I think. Um, mm -hmm. You know, pick your race first. Um, that determines your attributes anyway, and it's also going to dictate your choices in uh, character class. Yeah, I, I like I like differentiation. So earlier I was complaining or bemoaning a little bit, you know, the the die mechanic, you know, the 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 simple spread of just a D eight or a D ten with ten added. Okay, yeah, that's kind of you know that itself might be kind of boring, but what you gain from that is um, races start feeling pretty different from each other, mm. you know, on a, on an attribute level right off the bat. Dwarves don't just say get a minus one to charisma and elves don't just get a plus one to dex, um, dexterity. Uh, instead, you know, you could have a wider range. It's not just a matter of just a little bump here, a little detraction here, but everyone, you know, most, most races are still broadly comparable. Um, but yeah, to me, it's, to me, it adds a lot of flavor. Yeah. So it's kind of similar to what I picked for my number one, because uh, Dave Hargrave's solution to hit points, whereby his complaint is that characters get too many and you know, become more powerful than dragons and balrogs. Um, mm -hmm. his, part of his solution is to also, if I remember correctly, hard bake in the, you know, the level of starting hit points you get to your race. That's right. And yeah. I like that, you know. That's actually my number four. We rank these in, in terms of, uh, it was more kind of in character generation order um, <laughs> that I arranged mine. Um, but yeah, hit points was number four. I, I, I love that. Uh, rather than a high constitution, for instance, giving you a measly, you know, plus one to plus four hit points on top of your racial bonus, you, mm. get, your con you get your constitution score. 
And that's actually in a, uh, a conceit that was used um, in Bard, uh, Bard Games' Atlantean system, um, mm -hmm. what later morphed into Talislanta. You used something similar, but that, that came after Arduin. Okay, so you said you were about to say, I think, that you didn't use the racial role thing first. No, no, not at first. Um, you know, I started my first Arduin campaign uh, about two years ago. And um, I think it might have just been a matter of I wanted to get right into it. And there were also a lot of races on that chart that I wasn't prepared to deal with, or at least, yeah, didn't want to have to deal with. Mm. If someone said, I want to be a greater demon. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, joke's on me on that one, but that's a story for another time. <laughs> Yeah, so I just gave my players a uh, choice of either rolling 3d6 down the line, uh, what was it, 18d6, arrange the dice as you see fit, but only mm -hmm. dice. Um, so yeah, I didn't use it at first, but when I started um, our second Arduin campaign um, on the continent of Arcala for my wife and daughter, mutual friends of ours, um, that's when I started using the um, the character limit charts for for ability scores and everyone seemed to dig it pretty well even mm -hmm. the even the kids who only had experience with fifth edition mm -hmm. they were kind of like wow this is so different the races actually look different <laughs> yeah and i guess i guess there's nothing stopping you like just picking the races you want in your world off that list you know i mean personally i don't think i'd be having the greater demons the balrogs and the silicate beings um, right but you just pick out what you need i guess yeah yeah that's a good way to do it um you know again i uh, i was a little bit hasty in in my uh introducing my group uh to the game and uh the first time around and so I didn't, I didn't want to um, handwrite a whole, a whole mess of stuff out for them to have mm. to consult. And I, neither did I want to, you know, again, put the chart in front of them that made them realize, oh, I could be a Balrog. <laughs> <laughs> so we figure out that was not reasonable, but, mm. you know, nevertheless. <clears throat> yeah, it's very much a thing from a different time. And that, that's one of the things I love about it. Same. Yeah. Um, you know, when I'm, when I'm working with Arduino and I don't have quite all the books that you do, I think you excel me in having two or three more than I do. Um, but, uh, it does feel a little bit like role playing archeology span at times. Yeah. <laughs> um, which happens to be my professions. I, I like diving in, finding these gems, pulling it out. Some of, many of these ideas um, for my players, not because they haven't seen them before, but because they're like, holy smokes. No, no, this goes back to 1977 for some things probably earlier because they would have been tested in David's campaign before he published Party on Grimoire. Yeah. Uh, there, I got that one out right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so number one was race-specific attribute ranges. What's number two? Number two for me um, has to be the alchemist, yeah. <clears throat> uh, the, the alchemist here is um, 
you, <clears throat> people might think of them as uh, think of them somewhat like um, the precursor to the artificer of 3.5 and, and later. Um, but they are also true, a uh, true magic using class in that um, Arduin permanent uh, test spells, <clears throat> albeit at double the mana cost, double the spell point cost, because mm -hmm. uh, they're habituated to employing their magic in you know the making of magical objects rather than uh, creating magical effects out of well magical energy out of them. So um, that's that's the overview. Okay, and they're they're. They're pretty potent uh, right out the right out the gate um, in the complete arguing one, which I think gives the best, uh, certainly the most cohesive uh, treatment of the class out of all the arguing books that I've looked at. Yeah. Um, an alchemist can have up to uh, five basic level one knowledges, so. Uh, have you read about what those knowledges are yourself, Jay? No, recently. Come on. <laughs> mm? no, I haven't okay, I won't, I won't tease you. <laughs> um, so basically, when it comes to making uh, potions um, and arguing alchemists, um, learn uh, either priestly spells, clerical spells, or they specialize in um, wizard spells, magic user spells. Mm -hmm. um, they have to do one or the other. They can't do both. And um, when they create a potion, say, uh, say they want to create a potion of um, of growth, you know, um, they actually have to know that spell, and they just they simply have the ability to put it into a, a potion form or what mm -hmm. have you. Um, you know, they they are constantly on the hunt for. Uh, new sources of magical knowledge. Uh, they can elect to cast those spells, you know, straight up, but mm -hmm. they are inefficient at it, so they have to pay double the spell points to do so. Cool. So, I mean, in basically, in terms of like your top second, you know, second thing you want to put into your world, um, what is it that you particularly like about it? That it's um, modular. Every alchemist is going to look a little bit different. And as a referee, if you take the time to, um, you know, in whichever settlements you decide, probably have an alchemist or, or so, um, and, you know, just even just a skeleton of an NPC, you know, a few stats, um, uh, each one is going to look very different in terms of the wares maybe not that they can purvey, you know, cause they can always buy stuff, but certainly, you know, what they can produce and that will affect, you know, what they sell. So again, you um, it can bring, you know, a little bit more diversity uh, to your, to your game setting. I think that's the approach when I, I was looking at um, Gert's Dungeon Fantasy, um, there's a lovely uh, uh, expansion to that. I think it's book four sages, which has, uh, you know, essentially the alchemist. Um, oh, call it. And um, it's really, really cool because the whole idea there is very much um, what I'm seeing when I look at Arduin. It's this 
you know, the sage who is, you know, built, makes stuff, you know, makes potions and makes elixirs and all that kind of malarkey and also explosive stuff. Um, and, uh, but wants to get out there into the dungeon to find more knowledge, you know, and, and, the, and the specific kind of focus of that is finding tomes of knowledge from a lost past, you know, to sort of mine out the information and knowledge. And I think I like that. I think I like that. Um, it, it sounds fun. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's 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 loads of fun. Um, the only thing that could, I think, really uh, bear improvement in the Arduinian system would be if um, you know Dave had provided some guidance for uh, you know the the construction and maintenance of of alchemical laboratories and the like. But <laughs> any create any creative person can come up with that or if that's not really of great interest to the table uh they could simply elect to hand wave it you know mm -hmm. i mean Ar arduin does have um an alchemist guild um and so if you're in a large enough city that okay you know if you spend three weeks of downtime making potions x y and z um you know you part of that time is waiting around or lobbying for space in you know the alchemy labs at, at the mm -hmm. guild hall or something like that you yeah. know so it, you know a lot of this stuff depends on taste but uh the i think the strength of the arduin uh alchemist is uh without going into complicated feet trees or anything like that which some people like that's okay i don't um yeah, I, I'm. I'm also fascinated because um, the alchemist seems to first turn up in the Runes of Doom, the Arduin Grimoire Volume Three. Um, looking at page twelve, it's kind of like a sketchy outline. Um, in terms of um, the hobby, you know, like I think a lot of modern gamers would assume that ideas like the alchemist are way later. Um, and it's fascinating seeing Dave write about their ability, their to ability to have flash powder, um, nausea gas, tear gas. Uh, pyrotechnics, thermites, fire retardants, um, and various aromatic oils. It just makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is mighty funny. Absolutely. Funny. Everyone cracking up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good. So we've got, I mean, I'm conscious of time. Um, we got race specific attribute ranges. We've got the alchemist class. And next is. On my list is Witch Hunter. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Now, um, this one is very much a throwback to our um, real-world inquisitors with magical, some magical abilities thrown in. Yeah. Inc incredibly intolerant individuals. Um, rules as written. Um, well, I'll just I'll just read off my bullet points here because it'll underscore some of the it'll it'll present some of the behaviors and abilities <laughs> of a class. Barbarians and witch hunters fight on sight. When I first read that, my question was, why? Yeah. Um, I'll come back to that. Always attack chaotic. 75% chance that they would attack neutrals. So mm -hmm. I guess that was lawful. Can use certain priestly spells. Those are usually detects, um, you know, various ways to turn and other um, dispelling curses and mm -hmm. stuff like that. They can sense the undead. Uh, they're so fearless that they only roll to save against fear when dealing with greater demons. Okay. 
They get certain save bonuses. They can go into a berserk-like fury, a righteous fury, it's called. Awesome. Uh, limitations, though, they never retreat except um, from. Uh, they never retreat from certain enemies. Um, yeah, undead and evil clerics. I'm reading here. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you've got it right open to page twenty-five in Ardrin Gumwa Volume One. Yeah. What's your theory then? Why do they never? Re- you know, why do they always fight? Um, reading this is an interpretation in there, isn't there? You know, the witch hunters in this formulation are are uh, are complete fanatics. Um, they are they are mean. <laughs> yeah, I, I, there's a lovely thing um, on here. Disadvantages: they can never have more than twelve intelligence or fifteen wisdom, and their charisma <laughs> can never exceed nine, except with mortal yeah. types where it's plus five. <laughs> I love that. I love the fact you get a plus five bonus to your charisma when you're hanging around with lawful people. Yeah. But otherwise, you're horrible. <laughs> you know, reading reading about these guys, um, you know, I'd question, you know, how many lawful types uh, would um, be subject to that plus five bonus <laughs> to get because it's like, whew, you know. Yeah. Um, no, sorry, they, they also seem to hate technology and refuse to use anything except a crossbow that is complicated. Yeah, this, nothing this more is, complicated. They, they feel like a kind of fundamentalist Christian stereotype to me. <laughs> well, he, he does have that statement up top side, 99% Christian. So what is it you want, why do you want to bring that into your campaign? It seems to me like you just brought a religious fanatic kind of extremist, very <laughs> simplified stereotype into your campaign. Why? Well, for one, it could be, it could be really hilarious. And yeah, <laughs> I can see that. Of course. Um, but um, uh, a buddy of mine, Mark, um, who's, uh, you know, uh, also attends a meeting for worship with me. He's, um, uh, he surprised me. He was like, I want to play a witch hunter. I was like, what? Are you serious, Mark? <laughs> he's the last guy. He's the pastor's son, no less. Uh, last fella I'd expect to want to play this. And so, yeah. And, and he's like, well, I've got this idea. He's like, I, I don't, you know, it's like, it's like, I don't really like this quite as written, but I think we can use the rules and just reskin it a bit. I was like, all right, what do you have in mind? And he said, I want to run a purity scout. Imagine sort of like in Good Omens, you know, where you have um, that, not, he's a little older, but, you know, you have this one character who's recruited by, you know, the witch finder or sergeant or whatever, um, and is kind of inducted and, you know, kind of, you know, pip, pip, here we go, we're going to save the world kind of thing. yeah, the, the purity scouts are, are a little bit like that. Now, this is not an argument, you know, this is not a Hargrave. This is, you know, just, you know, my buddy shooting from the hip. Mm-hmm. And um, so he played this uh, 16-year-old kid named Max who was in this sort of um, almost uh, almost paramilitary, Boy Scout-ish uh, organization mm-hmm. and um, trying to purify arguing of of evil and uh i think he had a very low wisdom and all this and uh his his we left the abilities pretty much the same but made the character much more palatable 
um, and frankly, a little, you know, a little bit more unique by, you know, looking at it from the eyes of a very idealistic, horribly naive, although in this case, maybe that's not so horrible, um, kid um, who's just trying to do a good thing. And uh, we, we happen to have a chaotic evil character in the party. And remember that thing I said about the, the greater demon, I don't want that in my campaign. Well, one of the special abilities that his brother rolled for his character was um, uh, demonic ancestry. <laughs> so, so we ended up with a chaotic evil guy in the party. And um, at one point, um, there, is a, there, there was a point where uh, when using his detect evil ability that uh, Max, the purity scout, should have perhaps identified his compatriot as, in fact, chaotic evil. But he happened to be wrestling with an orc at the time. And so in his naivete, the purity scout Max, you know, just concluded, well, clearly that's coming from the orc and not from my friend. And he also talked in the falsetto the whole time. It was, it was, it was terrific. Great fun. Good stuff. Um, okay. We've got the witch hunter. So number four, you mentioned hit points, I think. Is that right? Yeah. Um, Let's circle back and talk about that a little. Well, why don't, why don't you go on that one? It's, it's on both our lists and I've, I've got some ideas, but I've been gabbing an awful lot. That's okay. Well, for me, um, I think Dave Hargrave had the same problem I had with original Dean. We have to bear in mind, I guess for listeners' sake, that Dave started with OD&D, um, and it seems that he got into the game probably around about 75, 76 in that period, and started writing and publishing around 77, 78. Um, and there's a lot, if you, I mean, I didn't admire a little bit of archaeology and dug back into Alara's and Excursions, where Dave was writing from about issue 22, 23 onwards. Um, yep. But even before that, people were talking about the same problem I have with hit points in D&D, which is that they relentlessly grow. Um, yeah. and, you know, back in the day when characters could breach 100 levels, you know, <laughs> um, it got ridiculous. You know, it kind of gets to the point where, as Dave puts it, I think in his own words, uh, you know, the, the characters have more hit points than dragons and stuff like that. So he, yeah. wanted to, he wanted to solve that problem. And I think it's one of the reasons why, personally, I always end up rejecting Dungeons & Dragons as a game system is because it still has this problem, you know, like this ever-high-level creep of hit points, um, which kind of has two, two downsides, I think. One of those downsides is obviously the monsters become, you know, less and less worrying. And, and it actually becomes a bit silly when you're, I think, when your um, fighter has more hit points, literally, than the dragon they're fighting. Um, the dragon is no longer terrifying in that situation. Um, but I think the other thing as well is that it, um, for me, it just kind of, I don't know, it, it doesn't feel believable when a character can just take so much punishment on and on and on and on and on. And that's where you get into this, this weird debate about what hit points really are. Are they really physical damage? Are they about your exhaustion and all those kinds of things? Right. Um, which I never bought at all. And that's why... You know, I tend to go for games. You know, I'm going to start playing GURP soon. And one of the things I love about it is, you know, yeah, hit points is a pretty much a fixed number. Fatigue is a separate issue. You know, it's, it's dealt with in a sensible kind of way. Um, now, Dave, I think, has one of the earliest stabs at this. Um, and what I like about it is the elements he uses to build hit points. 
So I think we mentioned it earlier, but basically, first of all, it's your constitution stat, if I remember correctly. Um, and then there's a bonus based on your race. And then there's a That's tiny right. little leveling bonus based on your class. So I think if you're a fighter, you get like one hit point every level. But if you're yeah. like a, a wizard, it's every three or four levels, you know? Um, That's right. And, and certain classes get a bonus right at first level. Yeah. And now one well. of the wonderful side effects of it that I noticed when I tried this out was that it meant that character class, like characters of different levels could hang out together. So you could have, and I think Dave mentions this in his own writings, you have this idea where a high level uh, fighter isn't all that much tougher than a low level fighter, for example, and they could go adventuring together and fight things and be at the same kind of rough level of risk. Um, which I like as well. I like the idea that you know, if you, if you have to start a new character, you can join a party with higher level characters and that isn't going to be a problem. Those characters aren't necessarily going to dominate. And again, this goes back to the early days of where people would turn up with their character to play in a dungeon. You know, <laughs> it's a completely different style of play, I think. And so that's the thing, the other thing that I love about it. I, I guess the whole mechanic ends up encouraging a slightly different approach to gaming. Yes, I agree. Uh, <laughs> I agree a hundred percent with everything you said on that. The um, and I've I've seen I've seen it in my arguing game because a number of, of uh, players um, in my first campaign can't, mm. and um, but when they do show up, they can bring their character right on in. It, it's literally been the biggest problem has been making their appearance make sense yeah uh, but as far as mechanical problems nothing and then if someone got a say got hit by some kind of level draining thing or something like that Ooh. which uh those are a pain um the the bookkeeping you can just hand wave it as you can do with so many things in role playing but um in you know your standard D level base hit point you know standard hit point progression kind of deal um you know, especially high magic where people might be picking up stuff that, you know, magic items that have boosted their constitution over time or what have you, mm. um, you know, it's like, okay, so you just went from level four to level two because you got hit by that white. Um, and oh, so how many hit points do I have now? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, gee, was it, what, was it when you were in, did you always have an 18 constitution or did that, you know, you, you can get into the, depending on how, you know, how much you want to, you know, haggle and him and haw over it. Um, it can be a chore just figuring out, okay, what are, what is my, what are my maximum hit points now? Um, that's much reduced in, in Dave's system, you know, because the, um, you know, the, the, it's a fixed progression. It's a small progression. Uh, it's very easy to figure it out. And if people didn't want to hand wave it, players often won't because they're going to want every hit point they can get, you know, mm. and, um, but you can walk it back pretty easily, pretty fast. So, yeah, I, there's a number of things that I, I found interesting in it as well. Um, so, for example, I'm looking, I mean, this system is in the Ruins of Doom, uh, the uh, Grimoire 3. And on page 25, you get the base character hit points. And there's a couple of interesting things that I always jarred slightly and made me kind of think, why is this here? Um, so dwarves get, a male dwarf gets 19 base hit points. Um, a male elf gets 21. Now, I don't know, <laughs> I think most people consider dwarves to be tougher than elves. 
Right. But actually, in, in arguing, it's the slightly the other way around, two, two in it. You know, and when you consider that a, a human, what are we talking, a male human gets 14. Um, yeah. Really kind of interesting. With races having a wider variety of things like ability scores, uh, base hit points, and, you know, some other things, mm. uh, these a lot more variation among races and classes mm. and argument and, and they really start feeling different. It's sometimes hard to pick up from the nine grimoires because some of this stuff is, you know, obviously it was rolled out over a series of uh, nine volumes and what, uh, how many years? 15 years or something like that? Um, I have to say, there's a wonderful bit on page 26 I just want to read. Um, it's complaints about it, you know, comments on the hit point system. A few of the players, most notably those of the Monty Hall variety with 150th level paladins that carry laser swords after two weeks of play and have a plus 100 armor, have screamed that my high level characters will all die. They'll go from 500 hit points to 55. Your system stinks. <laughs> And, and it goes on basically to say, well, hey, first of all, it makes more physiological and intellectual sense. Secondly, you can run different characters on any expedition. That's something we've commented on. And also, everyone has a more secure place in gameplay. It says because each can now play each and every game. No more with yes. high-level and low-level expeditions, which I think is a really interesting point. Um, they also said that the danger of death is equalized for all which I think is an interesting thing. Um, you know, he, I think he, what he's really wanting is this sense of we're all on the same level of risk here. Yeah. Um, and I think this does, pre, this does kind of precurse all of that, um, you know, the, some of the later game systems that come out through the 80s, which, which I think tried to do a similar thing. I'm thinking That's of right. games, I think in the games like RuneQuest, which comes in 78, I think 77, 78, and starts having a lower hit point thing, and so on and so on and so on through, you know? Um, Dave's right in that pack. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely cool. is. And of course, he ran in the same circles as Greg Stafford and, you know, Clint Bigglestown that were either part of the Chaosium or, you know, uh, closely affiliated, you know, with, uh, with gamers in that company. So, yeah. yeah. So number four was, number four was hit points. Number five is. Ability tables, hand down. That should be my number one. I, I love <laughs> this thing. Um, no, no I, I wrote <laughs> special ability tables themselves based on similar tables from the alliance and excursions fanzine. Um, I'd like yeah. to hear more about that. Okay, well, A&E, um, Alarms and Excursions is probably one of the best-known fanzines from the early days of D&D. Um, and I think the first issue of that, June, I think it is 1975. That's um, correct. Uh, that issue has, I think, one of the first articles in there. It's about four or five pages in after a piece of artwork. If I remember, just off the top of my head, this is, uh, you have, I think it's um, Swanson is his name the guy's surname. Uh, and these, this kind of the first ability tables where you kind of roll, uh, I think it's the percentile, and yeah. your character gets a bonus ability. And these become known as Swanson abilities, I think, in later issues. 
<laughs> everybody seems to adopt some version of these tables and then kind of do their own. Um, and I think what Dave's done is develop that, you know, um, and he's got a different table for every class. Am I right? That's right. He's got a, um, yeah, he groups the classes and about oh, five tables, I think, five or six tables. They span pages 14 to 18. So, yeah, logical on the whole, you know, warrior types. Um, you know, you have your um, magic using types, which uh, druids are lumped in with. Uh, mm. uh, clerics, you've got your rogues, your thieves. And then technos, normal, sages, courtesans, and all others not covered. <laughs> uh, so um, it's interesting to see. I don't know if you want to, like, I've got the cleric, Mark Swanson's special abilities from Alliance of Excursions number one for clerics and fighters and thieves. Um, it's actually done on 2D6, so it's a D66, yeah? Um, yeah. And, um, yeah, that's right. Not it's, yeah, and I'm wondering how different they are actually. Um, so, are we looking at Ardian Grimoire one? Give me a page. Of, I want to do some archaeology. 14. Live archaeology, ladies and gentlemen. Page 14. Oh. Here we go. Let's have a little comparison and just see what we've got. So, Dave's got a percentile table. Yes. All right. So, are oh, there some stuff on here? So, the first entry on Mark Swanson's list is a plus one to, uh, sorry, plus two to constitution. And then we've got a plus one with sword or warhammer, plus one with sword or mace, plus one with dagger or mace, and plus one with squat staff, and so on. That's looking remarkably similar, isn't it? That is. Um, although, am I hearing all pluses? Does Mark Swanson's table have any negative ability? Not that I can see. They're all positive. Uh, keen sense of smell, bump of direction, weather prediction. <laughs> Keen sight, undead resistance, attractive to the opposite sex, plus four. Um, <laughs> locksmith, and right down the bottom is undead friend, plus two, sorry, minus two to charisma. Oh, there, there's a penalty there, but they're an undead friend, which I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, but there you go. Um, oh, yeah. six, six and a five is um, flesh tastes horrible. Most monsters only bite once. Pick you out. Oh, only, yeah, 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 yeah. Love it. <laughs> so it's interesting like you, you go right back i think we see here you know the evolution of alternative rules um yes so why do you love these so much flavor um, yeah it's it's a painless way of it's also a painless way of you know handling care and, mm. and giving people feet type abilities but without really having people pore over rule books for an hour, you know, trying to line up that perfect feat so that they have the right chain to get, you know, jumping attack or whatever it is they want at level nine. Um, and uh, instead, you know, they can just roll a percentile die and there they go. They have it. And um, most people, are, are actually jazzed by this. I was like, if you look on page 14 under the warriors table, the first result given on a die roll of one or two, it's all penalties minus one with long swords minus two versus cold and disease. Yeah. 
Oh, that would blow if you rolled that. Um, uh, I find it interesting as well, like 9 to 10 has plus 1 with sabers and cutlasses, etc., but minus 3 versus stoning and paralysis. By yeah, stoning, what's the connection, right? You know, yeah, um, and by stoning, I presume you mean being turned to stone. Um, yeah, it, it's kind of interesting. There's a mix, isn't there? You get a lot of these actually have a benefit, but also a little bit of a penalty. That's right. Yeah. Uh, some carry massive bonuses. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it is an odd mix. And I, I wonder sometimes how he married some of those together, some of the bonuses and penalties. Mm. Um, I wonder sometimes, I wonder if he wasn't taking a list, you know, maybe his own homebrew and Swanson's list alongside it. Mm. And you know, sort of mixing and mixing and matching some of that stuff together. Like, okay, well, yeah. I gave a. Pr- I'm not sure what the alchemy was there. Um, I've read um, the first thirty or so issues of Alonzo Excursions. You know, I've got copies of the first hundred, and from what I've really you know dug around in so far, that I think a lot of people have these kind of tables back in the mid seventies you know, um, and late seventies. And maybe Dave is reading that, um, that I know we know he's reading it. We know he's writing for it later on. Maybe he's reading that and taking the stuff he likes, you know, mashing that up. Yeah. And he was very engaged, but you know, you'll, you, you probably know from your reading that he, um, commented on other people's contributions uh, fairly prolifically uh, in in most of his zines. Uh, So he was paying close attention and uh, numerous times complimented people on their ideas and said, I'm going to be grabbing that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And, you know, for for my home campaign. Absolutely. And and to me, it's it's the the spirit that the the so-called old school renaissance, you know, um, you know, which I'm loosely affiliated with that OSR sort of thing. I see myself as an old schooler. Of course, you know, what we're talking about here is the, these guys were the, you know, the original school. <laughs> That's right. Um, but that was the spirit. It was, you, you took someone's idea in their campaign and you matched it up with yours. And I think that's really obvious when you look at you know, Alara's excursions alongside Arduin. Yeah. Oh yeah, and then if you look at Dirt Free Press, uh, Press's publications, you know, like um, uh, you know the the Delian books, you know, like uh, the Delian Book of the Dead. Um, Dave actually, um, I think it's in Volume Six. Um, you know, he actually encourages people to go and grab dragon magic spells from. Um, oh, I forget the name of the book. Um, it, uh, but it's a it's a dragon tree um you know one of the, uh, mary and ben ezel's books for their campaign and dave is like go you know if you want more dragon magic than i've presented here mm. go over there they've got the good stuff yeah, <laughs> absolutely and that's the thing isn't it it's that spirit of you know um i'm making this and this is cool but hey you should definitely go see that stuff and that stuff you know um and and this that's what's happening again in our hobby which i think is fantastic it is yeah it's um but yeah so these you know back to the um uh, special ability charts um uh, one of the things i uh, really like about it is with uh you know you you'll easily have um 
three or four, maybe even all five of the uh, sort of table groupings of, mm-hmm. of classes represented in your group. Um, and then you have probably 30-ish entries on each, mm-hmm. uh, each table. Uh, no one is like to look the same as the other, even if they're both fighters. Um, you know, first of all, if they're particularly if they're different races, they're going to have different. They're going to have uh, you know generally a different spread of ability scores or potentially. Um, with the law of averages, they might come in pretty close, but potentially they could have a lot more. Then, yeah. um, um, whatever their special racial abilities might be before long without doing a whole lot of work. Um, You've got this nice skeleton to drape a character backstory on. Yeah. And you can elect to do that right from the get go, or it's something that the, you know, the group can, can build on as, as the campaign continues. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I find it economical. Um, I and uh, um, I, I like these short entries. Uh, they're very, <clears throat> they're very evocative. Every once in a while, you might bump into one that seems like, huh, I'm not sure I know exactly what that means in terms of a game mechanic benefit. Yeah. Well, hey, that's okay. Um, you know, talk it over with your player or talk it over with your ref. Mm. Yeah, it's really simple, really economical. Um, yeah. And effective. Special ability tables, ladies and gentlemen. We recommend them. Number six. Yes. I have critical hits and fumbles. Okay. For that one. And now, these are de rigueur in RPGs these days. Uh, and I think they caught on very quickly, even amongst like the, the Great Lakes crowd. Um, probably got them in there pretty early yeah similar to um similar to our middle earth role playing or warhammer but preceding all of them yeah. um, in, um you have some really really gory awful things happening <laughs> so in, in arduan particularly if you know your referee is going to be using critical hits and misses fight smart <laughs> don't, don't fight if you don't have to because <laughs> um, uh, many of these things are you know sever artery death and 1d10 <laughs> yep <laughs> it re- really reminds me of Rollmaster um, but it's yeah. course, you know, is much later boy those are great critical hit tables um, but um, again you know the, you have a table for every occasion yeah, I just, uh, read, I just read an entry here. Buttocks, buttock torn off, four yes. shot, <laughs> point damage, four to sixteen. Love it. Hey, since you're on that page, um, can you can you find one of the uh, one of the instantly lethal examples and read it out? Um, well, uh, you go 100 entire head pulped and splattered over a wide area, irrevocable death issues. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's like you, uh, volume one, page 60, it's just a wonderful list, isn't it? Uh, throat cut, dying one to three melee rounds, um, 
leg torn off, falls, dies in one to three melee rounds, heart pierced, die immediately, spine ruined, varied results. <laughs> I just love it. Nose ruined, minus six charisma and stunned. You know, some of them are, uh, oh, you've even got head, general, nothing apparent, later problems, you know. Later problems, yeah. I mean, what do you do? I mean, I guess what you do with that is you, I mean, that one has a little note at the bottom, A, it just says brain will hemorrhage in one to 10 days, resulting in either death or total permanent insanity. <laughs> oh, is that all? Is that all? So nothing apparently wrong now. Um, I love it. I, I, it's brutal, though. Absolutely brutal. Oh, it is brutal. And, and uh, just to uh, add to the uh, corkiness, uh, I was hoping that you were going to choose number 98, neck. Head torn off. Okay. Immediate death. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. Point damage, 5 to 50. <laughs> huh? Yeah. What, why do we need point damage at that point? Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, that, 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 that bit mystifies me. And I'm wondering if it isn't there to give uh, referees and players a sense of scale. Say, if you got a critical hit on something that does not have a humanoid shape, yeah, or is very massive, like a dragon, and all you're hitting it with is a plus two dagger, um, but you manage to get this amazing crit. Um, well, maybe dagger is probably a bad example. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, <laughs> but you, you get where I'm going. You know, the, you know, most human-sized weapons against fantasy dragons, at least. Um, are not like to be able to take off a head in a six-second combat round in one blow. Yeah, probably not going to happen. So I wonder if that scale isn't there to represent, you know, uh, just the ability to at least penetrate to a point and do massive damage. I, I, I don't that know. Re- that seems reasonable and logical, especially if we're talking to something that doesn't really have a head or like you said it would be ridiculous to have that i mean i remember this when i played a role master years ago goril swiftfoot um he leapt 50 feet in the air and beheaded a balrog with a short sword by the <laughs> um, right but you know when when i look back on it i always wince because i kind of think right, hey, I, I was jamming that that is not what would have happened you know I, a massive amount of damage i can see that but how the Hobbit leaps that, I don't know, whatever. You know, I think, like you said, it's a way of kind of giving a scale. If you don't want to use that result, here's a damage. You know, that, that seems reasonable. So what do you need to do to get a critical hit in Dave's system? Natural 20. All right. Okay, so straight up tw- uh, 5% chance. Straight up 5% chance. Uh, there's a... Oh, man, where is it? Um... Um, you look, I mean, there is the wonderful fumble table at the other half of that, isn't there? So, uh, you know, page 61, I'm looking at critical fumbles and I'm thinking those are nice. You know, there's some really good stuff in there as well. So the thing is balanced, I guess. Critical hits versus fumbles. Yep. And uh, I did a little bit of a setup to my remark on the... Uh, the massive amount of damage and why is that there um, 
you know, this whole idea of, well, maybe for scale, maybe for things that haven't got a body uh, or at least not a humanoid body. Um, in a later grimoire, and I thought that there was a critical hit chart in one of the grimoires for um, creatures that don't have humanoid bodies. Um, yeah. But at the moment, I'm not finding it. And AG2, welcome to Skull Tower, he did add a critical hit table for non-weapon copies, implying that what he had in mind when writing up the crit charts in uh, AG1 yeah. were, in fact, weapon costs. I think also the reason that Dave's um, critical hits are so stinking brutal um, is... Uh, well, he was a, a Vietnam War vet. Yeah. Um, so he doubtlessly, even if he didn't see combat himself, you know, or, or was personally involved, was people affected, um, you know, by combat. And uh, in on page uh, twenty nine of Welcome to Skull, AG two, um, he's got a little over a page treatment that he calls real medicine and fantasy gaming. And this was basically written by his um, good friend, uh, Bill Voorhees. Bill Voorhees is a, a doctor of in, uh, internal medicine. And uh, in AG2, uh, Dave adds, um, you know, sort of a healing problems, uh, uh, duration of recovery, and a variety of other things um, to add that extra realism if you want it. Um, and yeah, as long as you don't use it too slavishly, I think that can be a real good thing. It, uh, I like it. Yeah. I, 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 enjoy, I enjoy the insight. It's cool. I, you know, there's not a lot more to say, but they are just really nice, simple again D100 tables, and um, yeah, they add a lot of flavor. Yep. So number seven is artifact cards. Okay. Now, have you ever used artifact cards? Yeah, I've never used them, but I, you know, yeah, I know I've got some of them. I think um, ready to print off at least. But go on, tell us about them. Artifact cards, uh, Dave used to like to keep, uh, he actually kept a little faux uh, chest, uh, maybe it was a real chest, I don't know, a box of um, artifact cards, um, index cards. Mm. Um, and most of them were magic items, so he usually only busted it out when someone found a real goodie. Um, so on one side, um, will be an illustration of the item itself. Uh, on the flip side um, would be some description of the item. Um, mm -hmm. Depending on what sort of game he was running at the time, um, it, he probably didn't have everything written on them. Um, and uh, usually for potions and kind of throwaway, he was probably more generous in the amount of information given just because it's like, well, I mean, gosh, they're going to drink it once and it's gone, whatever. Yeah. Um, a buddy of mine, uh, Mark Ortega, um, he uh, turned me on to artifact cards. I had read about them. 
you know, I was like, wasn't too wowed about the idea because yeah. I, I kind of kind of felt like, well, it's more paper to keep track of. Um, aren't you just, you know, telegraphing that this is a magic item before they've actually done the work, done the work to determine that it is. <laughs> uh, so there's a strategy when you give these out, but um the thing I like about it, what Mark did was he and some of his friends put together these booklets. Uh, what did he call it here? I have one sitting near me. Uh, Tome of, no, Trove of Treasures. Um, and uh, they've got an illustration of an artifact, uh, uh, you know, a magic item or what have you. Um, and then there are, and it has a number on the page. Um, then there's a, you know, space for description, space for abilities and history, and then a note on the possessor. Yeah. There's a corresponding card to each page. Right. And, you know, number and everything and physical description. It's largely blank on the back. That's right. what you give the players. And so you've got, as a referee, you've got your reference right there who's got who's got the magic item what can it do etc yeah. um, it's key to a card it's visual you've got a picture of it so does your player um and so there's no well which plus one which plus one weapon was that which plus one sword that you have yeah. <laughs> you know none of those arguments anymore um as long as people don't lose the card um <laughs> um and uh and boy people love getting these things uh I, i've started using them and um you know the, the players were stoked they they loved it and it was fun making them yeah i i've always been like hesitant because it's the art you know getting good artwork and also a consistent style of artwork because i don't know i'm a stickler for that kind of thing you know like a, i've been put off by it because it seems like a lot of work as a gm um but I can see the appeal. I can see the, the how players would light up when you give them this artifact, essentially. You know, the card itself, let's, let's be honest, it's an artifact. It's a cool thing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Uh, it feels, it really feels like a, like, like a reward, like something earned. Mm. Uh, so some items I've thrown at my players, some items that simply have you know, a considerable monetary value, mm -hmm. but I gave it a card. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to throw a couple of, um, you know, kind of a couple bummers in there as it were. I mean, not <laughs> bummers because they can at least get money for it and it's, and it's pretty and, you know, they all like, they all like shinies, mm -hmm. but um, at the same time, got a card from Gabriel. It may or may not be a magic item. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yep. yeah, that's careful nice. to do that from the outset. Yeah, I guess it's good. That's a good thing to, like, you know, it's anything of any significant interest, maybe. That's what you're yeah. doing, isn't it? And then some of them are magical. Some of them aren't. Um, some of them are more mundane. Um, that's cool. So I like the idea of someone having done the work for me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> digging that out now. Um, I, think I, have, uh, I think I have a few of the ones that Dave... I think they have that they they come from Arduin. There, that um, Emperor's Choice Games put out a, a few examples. I think. Um, yes, they did. 
Um, so I, I might have to go dig those out. But, you know, that's something I really haven't thought about adding to my campaign. And, and now I'm thinking maybe I should. Yeah, there, there are a lot of fun. And, and some of it depends on how artistically inclined a referee is. Um, I used to be a fine arts major, at least for a short time. No, I, enjoy, I enjoy doodling. Um, and for certain things like potions, um, you know, you can just make up a bunch of generic ones, you know, mm. f for the most part. And they're, they're all fairly interchangeable, at least in terms of the appearance of the candy. And, and no one's going to look askance at you for doing that for something that occurs perhaps with reasonable frequency. Um, yeah. So there are some things I would be very uncomfortable trying to draw. <laughs> so yeah. but I think the other thing about this is it starts to I mean, it starts to encourage you to do some things with your potions, for example, like making each one perhaps a little bit different, you know, um, every game has its standard healing potion. And um, that to me has always seemed, um, I don't know, a little bit mass production, a little bit of, of our era, you know, where, yes. You know, like uh, like Andy Warhol cranking them out, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things that happened in my campaigns in the past when we played the AD is that the guys got to recognize the color and viscous viscosity of things. My potions of healing are always red um, and, you know, runny red liquid. And it doesn't matter. They might be in a weird container, but that's what they are. Um, yeah. Maybe that's because the formula kind of produces that type of of thing but i'm kind of starting to wonder whether it might be more fun to have real variety you know and in the in the bottles and in the you know the liquid and everything else just kind of shake that up if you'll pardon the pun <laughs> i see what you did there yeah and that is that is fun to do there's there's a lot to be said for both approaches um you know for the perceptive player um it can definitely be seen as a reward you know, if, if they're paying attention to things like color, odor, viscosity, yeah. and, there, and there's some, consist some consistency to that, you know, um, I can definitely see a case for, well, let's reward that kind of, you know, observational ability. Um, yeah, but I did I have to say, I did find players like that to some degree. Um, and it did make it easier for, you know, if they got the goblins um, healing potion, they knew that it was a healing potion, you know. Uh, but, go on. Even then, you could throw them, you could introduce radiation. Uh, take David, he had, I think it was an AG4, he had um, an entire section on orcish alchemy. Yeah, um, and he had a he had a guideline in there that basically any non-orc or goblinoid trying to drink this stuff, it was usually so putrid that <laughs> you know whatever sent or you have to save or something um, yeah. substitute your mechanic here. But um, suffice to say, most people would just retch it right back out or spit it out. Um, mm if they weren't <laughs> um, goblin goblinoids or, or orc types. Um, yeah. You could be, you could generally have consistency with uh, say the quality of the potion itself, um, except maybe there's that one guy, because there is always that one guy or gal who's going to figure out how to make 
say, a potion of diminution, um, probably said that wrong, shrinking, um, <laughs> that um, looks, smells, and otherwise behaves very much like um, a healing potion. But in fact, it just makes a person maybe something yeah. worse. Um, but maybe, you know, that particular malicious um, uh, alchemist or whomever it is, um, has a signature bottle that they put it in. So you could still, you could shake it up, yeah. but maybe, you know, you know, it depends on how, how many of those you give out. So whatever, there's a million ways to skin that cat. No, absolutely. But they're cool fun. And like coming back to the idea of a card, you know, I do think there is something to be said for handing the player a nice little prop, you know, a nice little artifact. Um, and it's obviously easier to either grab some art from online or something or uh, it'll sketch something than it is to make something. <laughs> Number no eight problem. is the brawl chart. Okay. This is an AG1. Right. Uh, I'm immediately on guard because I get, I get really uptight about terrible grappling and brawling rules. So... <sighs> Okay, well, I have a suitable um, uh, caveat. I haven't, I haven't used this yet. Um, this okay. is, I, there are two items on here that I haven't done a whole lot with, um, and that would be the Brawl Chart and Arduinian Religions. Um, yeah. So, you know, these, these, even though I say they're, among the top 10 things to grab from Arduin. Um, the, the, this is this one is untested at my table right now. Um, but uh, for listeners who might be familiar with the old chain mail rules put out by Guidon Games and then uh, TSR, uh, the you know, jousting action players choose strategies from the same table okay okay so sequence of play for brawling is each person secretly writes his move faster dexterity attacks first and then the umpire calls for a brawl and orders a shame okay and then there are two parts each melee is the fastest attacks and the slower defends and then slower attacks and faster defends remember hits are cumulative and those who lose all points are unconscious okay cool all right, so I get the basic idea. That's the basic idea right there. Um, I like the table, you know, for sort of a, a shillelagh law kind of brawl. It's, yeah. it's overall, I view it in terms of the maneuvers available. Um, so there, um, there are 24 different attacks on here. <laughs> Left cross. Left low kick, you know. Haymaker. Yeah, yeah, loving it. Um, forked fingers into eyes, loving that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, near and dear to, to me and my daughter. Uh, it's something we do in our Lua martial arts <laughs> quite a bit. And, and then you get a results. So you kind of get uh, everything from a miss, no damage. Then you got kind of a quarter hit, which does one point. Um, you get a half hit, which does one to two points, a full hit doing one to four, and a double hit doing two to eight. That's going to hurt. Okay. So they, you know, and then he's got provisions, 
um, in the footnotes for, you know, when one is blinded, stunned, um, there's a chance on double full hits. There's a 20% chance of an outright kill. Mm. Um, so, you know, you know, it's kind of that situation where a kick to the head can, <clears throat> you know, just maybe knock a person cold or make their day terribly unpleasant, or it could end them. Um, okay. Um, it looks it looks interesting. It's, it's one of those things, it's one of those charts that I might overlook simply because, you know, when I see the numbers and list, and it's kind of like a, a list across the down the side and a list across the top cross reference thing. And my yeah. eyes get glaze when I see that kind of thing. <laughs> much, much better in the Arduin trilogy. Mm. They, they reformatted it to just a standard you know, almost spreadsheet cell based kind of table. Yeah. Uh, much easier to read. Um, I'd definitely be willing to give it a go. Um, you know, you know, that'd be easy to do. I mean, that would yeah. be easy to do, wouldn't it? We could roll up a couple of characters and stick them in a, an arena or in a bar and just have a little fight with it. And it, you know, see if it works. I almost, I almost put off our conversation till later in the week. Um, so that I could do just that and, you know, maybe uh, have a report, but I think I'll just have to settle for doing the experiment and then posting it where you can see it. Yeah. That's cool. Okay. Um, I'm just conscious that we're in the longest episode ever, um, which is fantastic. <laughs> but oh, good, good. I decided to not yeah, well, you know, you, you're knocking Frank Turfler off the, the crown now. So let's see. Let's see how far we can push it. Um, so bear with us, listeners. Uh, number nine is going to be... Ends of Arduin. Ends of Arduin. Okay, so the table of ends. Okay. Yeah. Where is this? Uh, this is in Welcome to Skull Tower, AG2. Yeah. So... Uh, we've got the location, the city or place, um, and then a list of establishments who owns them, their star yes. rate, and what street they're on. Okay. Yeah. The star rating is given, uh, yes, on page 97. Um, it's a five-star rating. So, you know, one star is a half a silver penny per night with bread and beer. Oh. All the way up to five star, two to five gold sovereigns. So that would be gold pieces um, yeah. in, in most uh, per night, per person without any extras. Yeah, I um, like it. That. I like the idea of this kind of standardized approach to inns in terms of costs, you know, but not standard, in terms, you know, really kind of giving it flavor. Yeah, and do, do inns usually figure? Um, you know, pr uh, prominently other than as a meeting place, say, for uh, for in, in your campaigns or in your experience as a player, Che? Um, um, personally, I think that they are the starting point. I think most of my starting towns or whatever have a prominent inn. And, and I like to put a bit of detail into that. Um, you know, I remember when I wrote um, my module for Mithras that, I spent a lot of time on on the in in that particular scenario, but then actually in play, I think players tend to not you know pay much attention. 
Um, yeah. And what I found interesting is when I started presenting my players with like, I don't know, the bill of fare, you know, like a menu um, and things like that, they warm up to that, I think. Um, okay. and, I thought, and if you took, I suppose if you take Dave's like list here of, of inns and roadhouses and you combine it with, I think it's in the Lost Grimoire or one of the latest ones, there's, there's, there's stuff about like drinks and food yes. and specific things. Um, I think you can really give flavor to this, if you'll pardon the pun. <laughs> there you go again. <laughs> I, I'm loving the names of these pubs, though. It's great, you know. Um, Adamantine Amazon in Curahane. And um, I, I noticed the, the three hearts and three lions in Methana. Yes, a good uh, Paul Anderson reference. Yeah, yeah. the prismatic bat. Um, which is in Rosewater. I love it. And there's a Hobbiton, you know, his location, Hobbiton, the Grumpy Griffin and the Horn of Plenty. Um, the Horn of Plenty being on Berry Bush Street, three star and having tiptoe sleepy feet as his owner. Love it. <laughs> that is a good name, tiptoe sleep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think I could just mine this out. I think you just take the location off and put that into your campaign. Um, you know, you've got yourself really good list of of you know, places to, to have a visit. I mean, really, I don't know. I think it's kind of interesting that uh, I'm thinking about setting books a lot, of, you know, a lot of time have information I find very difficult to digest. Um, yes. But I've immediately, just looking at a list of, of the inns in Talismond, um, you know, I've got um, a really interesting sort of sense of the place instantly. You know, yes. there's, a, there's a place called Cutpurse Alley in which Mama Knoll's, uh, you know, inn is. And I can immediately imagine what that place is like. Right, right. Yeah. And then there's uh, your favorite, Red Lantern Street. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so y you get a little sketch of, you know, what the, uh, what the neighborhoods are like or the districts in some of these places, um, the number of ends can serve as a proxy for how populous uh you know mm. each, each of these settlements is uh so yeah for me this was um this was a godsend when, when i stumbled across this table yeah. um and then probably one if if you looked hard enough we one might even find people with the same family name in different locations i'm not sure that that actually occurs uh -huh. but oh here's an owner paul asimov <laughs> three hearts and three lions that, that yeah, that's funny that's um, cool. yeah, yeah yeah lots of good stuff and the lots of in, some independent roadhouses on page 96 as well which i like it's um so on the border west of foxton is the flying lion run by T.C. Drake, and it's a two-star, you know, and, and in Whisper Trees, near Misty Mountain, is the White Rock Inn, which is obviously a very famous place in Ardian. So many, so many little nods to the fantasy genre as well, you know. Um, near Shelob's Wood, Spider <laughs> Inn, you know, love it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's excellent stuff. Um, yeah, everything about the, about this table is evocative and, um, useful even outside arguing you know yeah, yeah that's great that's a nice one 
So finally, then, the table of Arduinians for number nine. On to, now, I think you've telegraphed this, isn't it? Arduinian religions. That's right. Yeah. Now, now, uh, this is a big one for me as well. But you, you go ahead. Tell us a little bit about it. Well, um, AG8, uh, uh, The Winds of Chance, is um, really what sort of brought a lot of it together for me. In okay. earlier volumes, um, I forget which offhand, but it's in one of the first three, you have this, uh, you know, this table of guilds and societies and uh, another table of Arduinian religions. Yeah. Um, and you don't get too much out of those. Uh, you get a name of the, of the, the cult or the society. Yeah. You get, you get a, um, I think, slogan I, I forget what he, what how they motto or something like that yeah uh, and then an alignment i think if i'm remembering correctly so in winds of chance um you know sort of the the religious treatment really starts on page 67 and that's when david deals with the big three uh the triune um moon cults so Arduin has three moons. Um, you've got a red moon, uh, a silver moon, and a, a blue moon, I believe. Um, now, each of these is uh, inhabited by or actually is, um, you know, one of, uh, one of three gods. Um, the red moon uh, being Shagroth, uh, the red moon spider, um, evil as one might imagine. Um, then there's the neutral deity, the great night hawk, Skirin, and he's the blue moon. And then uh, sort of the, the patron deity of Arduin is the lady of the silver moon, or the lady of, uh, the lady of light. And of course, uh, she's the silver moon. Um, and he goes on for about four pages um, about the history of these three gods, their followers, what their religions look like, yeah. um, the relationship among the gods, um, and then um, going on from there, starting on page 71, uh, Hargrave provides uh, one paragraph um, summaries of some 60 plus um, religions and, and pretty much all of them in arguing. Uh, there's a couple exceptions, but almost all of them have representation in arguing. It's interesting as well. I mean, for me, um... I made reference to the, the, the Temple of 10,000 Gods, which for me is something I introduced to my own world um, a while ago. And it's completely inspired by the first sentence um, of that section you were talking about in the Triune Moon Gods. It says, in the beginning, before the time of the 10,000 Gods, there were ah. three gods and one great demon in all the world. You know, that first sentence. Now, for me, that so resonated, you know, and going on to read the story. Um, but they actually became in my own world of, of Mr. Mir and now, you know, my Cognio became 
the temple of 10,000, you know, is the kind of this idea that there is a, temp, a temple that welcomes all of the shrines from all the deities and people can go and worship what they want is an idea utterly and totally inspired by Dave, you know, um, a development, if you like, of his idea. Um, huh. that I will, you know, that in the modern time, there are just this unbelievable variety of gods and goddesses, you know. Um, and I think in his world, if I, I may be mistaken, but I get the feeling that because arguing is a nexus across dimensions, I, I get the feeling That's that right. a lot of these are imports, you know, that people have come and, and, and powers have come from different places uh, and, and kind of taken refuge on arguing. Well, yeah, in fact, and um, I, I just wrote um, an article about this for uh, John Soloway's um, upcoming dead tree zine um a land beyond beyond um and um where i look at a few of uh, the major influences on uh david's uh work and arguing you know Mm -hmm. sort of where some of these ideas come from and i spent some time talking about um where religious ideas come from you know or how they're represented and and arguing and about 10 or 12 um of these are imports from our own world in fact yeah um you know you have the pax romana for instance which is the um sort of classical roman pantheon yeah and there's um the vedic traditions in there i think that's correct. Yeah, yeah. The Vedic, the Vedic mysteries, they call it. Yeah. The other thing that his treatment, you know, even though most of these only get, you know, maybe six lines of definition, um, you know, th- these contributions to his volumes, um, you know, set you up pretty well for getting a picture of, um, you know, how religion works and arguing you don't get a complete picture far from it no. um yeah but you get flavor don't you don't you know. do uh you know some of these religions mention like say a fourth continent uh it might be the case that nowhere else in volume eight does he uh does he talk about the fourth continent that that might be your only your only reference um which can sometimes be frustrating, but uh, maybe to some, um, I, I find it inspiring. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it inspires me to look elsewhere to figure out, you know, elsewhere in the gaming literature, um, you know, mainly in the arguing corpus, but sometimes beyond. Um, and what is the fourth continent? How many continents are there? <laughs> yeah. um, but by the same token, uh one is free to ignore it or just simply give it your own name your own history yeah there's a a nice thing as well um a little bit later in that same volume is a spotlight on arduine religion the church of him him yes (laughs) this religion was the brainchild of a player named jim mathis Yes, the very same fellow who's the head of Grimoire Games some 11 or 12 years ago. And I just think this, again, is wonderful that it's obvious that Dave is absorbing what his players bring, you know, and what his friends bring to the hobby. Yes. And kind of, you know, preventing that uh, as part of his world and part of what he does. And I I love that. 
Yeah, his 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 world is um, is replete with those kinds of um, references. You know, uh, the the doctor I had mentioned earlier, Bill Voorhees. Um, he's his name appears usually in alternate spellings, but um, in a number of spells. Um, also, one of the one of the settlements in Arduin mm. um, is essentially named after him. It's just changed a little bit. Uh, Vorlnios, uh, uh, I believe, is sort of an homage to um, to Bill. And um, yeah, it, it, there are tons of these, tons of these references <clears throat> all over the place. And um, it is heartening to see. You know, um, he had a you know a um a cohort of gamers and friends that were clearly very dear to him um and he put you know he put a lot of his a lot of his heart uh and in, into this work and yeah uh yeah for me it shows every you know every time i read it so it's, it's a very very personal work altogether yeah i i i find myself quite frequently quite emotionally moved actually by some of the stuff um you know sometimes with joy and humor and sometimes it's a little bit poignant um but it's cool yeah yep absolutely okay so we are very much towards the end i wanted to recap the list so i've got number one for you race specific attribute ranges number two alchemist class number three witch hunter class number four hit points number five special abilities tables uh number six critical hits and fumbles number seven artifact cards number eight the brawl charts number nine the table of arduin's inns and number 10 the arduin in religions fantastic stuff so i guess i'm just i'm just going to touch on a couple of bits to finish if that's all right um i yeah, want to no. talk about I want to talk about something I'm definitely importing into my campaign is the different types of coinage. Um, they ah. have extensive tables on every type of coin and different metals and everything else and their values. And I felt, for me, this was a real touch of verisimilitude, you know, really wonderful addition. Um, I also wanted to touch on, he uses stuff like uh, Spellpoint Magic, which I love and has a wonderful system for that, uh, both for you know, clerical magic and for arcane. Um, and I guess the last big thing I, I wanted when I played D&D anyway, is I nicked his XP table as well. I think it's out of Grimoire 1. Um, simply because it was uh, really cool. <laughs> um, you know, how do you, how do you mean? Well, you get XP for dying for starters. Oh, oh that XP table, yeah. Yeah, it's got like 400 points for death with successful revival, <laughs> reincarnation, or curse changed into another type of entity or whatever, that kind of thing. And it goes right down to like down to 50 points for figuring out a trap or tripping a trap and taking damage. Taking damage. Quite, yeah, I quite like that. You know, you screw up, you take damage off a trap, but you still get 50 XP, you know. Um, going over half damage as well gets you XP. Lots of little yeah. stuff like that. I, I just think it's cool. And um, a bit further up the table, there's sort of being the point man um, up until you're yeah. sort of third level. Um, That's right. That's cool. I, I love that stuff. 
I, I, I use this. I use that table. And I, I, I'm sorry. I thought you meant the class XP table. Um, but, but yeah, this one, I, I agree with you. Yeah, I love page, it. And page two, my, Grimoire one, just awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a real gem right there. Uh, I do have to say, I do the XP for treasure still. Um, but um, yeah. I also use this table and yeah. Yeah, it's the, interesting. The... Dave, obviously, I mean, he went through an evolution. He started with that table. He 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 didn't like XP for treasure, as I gather. Um, and he Correct. developed his own table. And then later on, actually, um, if you read the complete arguing, Dave is at a point of like it's per adventures. You do a number of expeditions and then you level up. He's kind yep. of the precursor of that whole um, what do they call it? Milestone XP. You know, yeah. he's doing that. 20 30 years ago <laughs> yeah um, which which i think is marvelous but but i personally i like that step he took into hey here are some cool things you can do in the game and you get xp for that yeah, yeah. um kind of dumbfounded really by uh how early the milestone for xp appeared um and you know the funny thing about the complete arguing is david was trying to write you know the original title for that was going to be arguing bloody arguing yeah uh and early as 1982 even though he's coming out with all these other volumes he was trying to write you know sort of his magnum opus at least what he saw at his table as his perfect rpg and um so he probably was beginning to gravitate toward the milestone xp idea even earlier than 92 yeah. when, you know, it's published. So, yeah, I, I still like XP myself, but um, one day I'm going to run a campaign and, and try this milestone idea. Yeah. Um, and so that's about it really. Um, thank you. Thank you so much, Gabriel, for coming on the show and uh, having a chat with me and really helping me with my own campaign as well. And the last month, that conversation has led to me uh, commissioning some work from uh, James J.E. Shields to create um, my very own artifact deck. I'm also stealing several of the ideas that we talked about and plugging them into my campaign. Even though I'm powering it instead of a D&D base, I'm using GURPS, um, there are so many good things to steal and to use in the Arduin grimoires. And hey, I just recommend that anybody who's interested in fantasy gaming, especially the history of fantasy gaming, goes and checks out whatever they can of David Hargrave's stuff. It's become very difficult to get hold of it these days, but um, you know, there are plenty of people out there who will point you in the right direction if you're interested. Anyway... You've probably heard quite enough of me wittering on, so I'm going to go. I really hope that you don't mind um, this super long um, discussion, and I really hope that you got something from it. And please, if you've got any thoughts, comments, questions, or whatever, well, you know what to do, you know? Give us a call in. Last but not least, thanks again, Gabriel, for coming on the show. Thank you, listeners, for listening, and I hope to get back to our regular programming as soon as possible. Game on!